Barry Lynn is director of the Markets, Enterprise, and Resiliency Initiative at the New America Foundation, where he is also a senior fellow. His work has appeared in Harper's, The Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, and The National Interest. He's author of End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation, and most recently of Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Barry Lynn. I wanted to thank you all for coming out tonight. So I wanted to start talking this evening about uh, tea parties because there's a lot of loose talk in this country about tea parties. And uh, I think it's important that we get our understanding of the original tea party right. A lot of folks like to say that the original tea party, the first tea party, was against high taxes and high prices. But that's really not the case, the, actual, the Tea Act of 1773 resulted in tea that was priced lower than the prevailing market. Nor is it really accurate to say the Tea Party, the original Tea Party was against the idea of taxation with or without representation. Because for a long time before the Tea Party, there had been a rumor afoot that the tax had been canceled. And yet, the people in Boston and people in other cities around the country, around the colonies, they continue to plan their protests. So what does this mean? What it means is that the real story is that the Tea Party, the first Tea Party, was people rising up against monopoly. Folks in America back then did not want one company governing our trade in tea, or anything else for that matter. What they wanted was liberty to trade, liberty to make open markets with each other, liberty to interact with each other freely. Now the original Tea Partiers, the founders of this country, they accepted taxation within limits. They rejected, what they rejected was monopolization of commerce and they rejected it completely. Now America was born out of many rebellions against monopoly. It was born, we were born, this nation, out of a rebellion against monopoly over our souls by any one church, monopoly over our land by any few feudal lords, and monopoly over our commerce and our markets by any few companies of men. And for 200 years we used our anti-monopoly laws to protect ourselves against such forms of control. Now, when I say anti-monopoly law, and, and, but when I talk about anti-monopoly law, I don't mean just antitrust. I mean all use of government power to protect our open markets and promote competition at home and abroad. Anti-monopoly law is our single most fundamental tool for extending the concept of checks and balances into our political economy to prevent the erection of private government to pr allow us to protect ourselves against concentration of economic, hence political power. If there's any unfortunate fact about our anti-monopoly laws, it's the name. It's the idea that, it's the word anti. It's like the idea we're against something because at the heart of our anti-monopoly laws, our anti-monopoly vision is this simple, elegant, powerful vision which is a vision of an independent republic made up of independent citizens. And I think it's important to take a moment 
to understand what this means. And when the founders spoke of free trade, they didn't mean that there would be no rules over trade. What they meant is that there would be no dependence. We would not be dependent on any foreign power, that we would be free of other people's trading systems. There was no acceptance of foreign governance of our trade. That's what free trade meant. So having an independent republic in their eyes, that meant, that demanded that we use our government to battle all foreign mercantilists, all foreign companies and corporations and countries that are trying to take over some aspect of commerce in this country. An independent citizen? The basic idea of an independent citizen is that if you're going to have a real democracy, a true democracy, you couldn't really have some of your citizens being dependent on other folks. So the only way to create a true democracy was to ensure that none of your fellow citizens depended on or were subject to the whims of other people. To achieve this, the idea of the founders was that every citizen, or at least as many citizens as possible, would have property and they would have the liberty to work that property. And that meant liberty to take that work to open markets. This meant using government to prevent the rise of all foreign, I mean, of all domestic monopolists, all would-be lords. Now, Madison and Jefferson and the other Democratic Republicans, and that was the name of their party, Democratic Republican Party. That was the second party. After the Federalist Party was created in 1792 by Hamilton, they created the Democratic Republican Party. They were realists. They understood that not every individual would be truly independent all the time. That's why their goal was to distribute power as widely as possible to make it as as many citizens as possible to make themselves as free as possible. Over the years, a lot of folks have said that, that Madison and Jefferson, they've called them naive. They've said that their vision hinders specialization of labor. They say their vision of independent citizens hinders the creation of greater piles of wealth. Yet in truth, their vision was actually extremely sophisticated politically because they understood that many of those who preached extreme specialization of labor, like Hamilton, what they actually favored was the use of state-backed monopolies to concentrate wealth, to concentrate power, to concentrate control on their own hands and in the hands of their friends. These independent citizens, back then we called them farmers, we called them shopkeeps, we called them artisans, we called them producers, Today we call them entrepreneurs, small businessmen, innovators. These independent citizens would in turn, the reason we were supposed to create and foster this independence, these independent citizens were going to serve us, serve society as the best, this is a quote from Madison, the best basis of public liberty, a bulwark. People understood what it meant to be independent would serve as a bulwark against all those lords. Madison expressed this, he had this simple equation. He said, the greater the proportion of this class to the whole society, the more free, the more independent, and the more happy must be society itself. So the founders, or at least that faction of the founders, 
who identify themselves as democratic republicans as opposed to aristocratic republicans. They established government in America not to empower the few to rule the many, but precisely to empower all of us to work together, to protect ourselves against the few who would use private government to rule us and who would use foreign government to rule us. Anyway, let's, I think it's worth taking a little look at our independent republic of independent citizens today, 30 years after the Reagan administration got rid of our antitrust laws, 16 years after the Clinton administration essentially overthrew our trade laws. And it's you know, worth doing this by looking at some of the economic activities in which people, our fellow citizens, engage. And, you know, I like to start with books. You know, I've written books. I know a lot about the book industry. And, you know, last fall, not quite a year ago, Walmart and Amazon had a little price war over books. Some of you guys may remember that. They were throwing books out on the street. You know, it was like they were using them as loss leaders to bring you into Walmart or onto the uh, Amazon website so they could sell you something else. They weren't selling you books. They were selling them below invoice. But they were going to sell you TVs. They were going to sell you T-shirts. Now, this is something that raised my interest because I spend a lot of time looking at how dangerous it is when you have this kind of loss leading in an industry, what it does to the profits of those who actually produce the things that we rely on. So I started calling around. I called up publishers. I called up booksellers. I called up editors. I called up writers. I called up the people who make our books. And what I found was fear. In the back room, when I was talking to some of the most powerful publishers in this country, in New York City, I, they would tell me about how Amazon is destroying their businesses is telling them what to do, is dictating prices to them. You know, Amazon's got, in the case of my book, well more than half of my book sells on Amazon. And that's true for most nonfiction, most political work. Ebooks, it's well above 80% of the books. Amazon essentially controls that industry. And the people who work in that industry are deeply fearful. And they will not speak against Amazon in public. And you know, we see what Amazon will do to people who buck them. Because last year, Macmillan, big company, said, we're going to set our own prices for books. And you know what Amazon did? Shut them down. Shut them down. They shut off access. If you went to buy a Macmillan book on Amazon, you couldn't do it. Market was closed. Now, I don't think there's many people in this, uh, this room who believe it is in any way acceptable for the people who publish and write our books to live in fear. But that's the way it is today. They live in fear. Beer, somewhat different space in our economy. And here, seemingly, we see like this radical change, this radical success. Because in 1978, there were 42 breweries in this country. Now there are some 1,630 breweries in this country. Now, the difference is back in 1978, the largest brewery had about 25% of the business. Today, the top two breweries have above, together, have above 90% of the business. Two breweries, 90% of the business. Anheuser-Busch InBev from Belgium, South African Breweries, which controls Miller Coors. 
1,625 of those breweries, all those, those little craft uh, uh, beers, 4% of the marketplace. Recently I spoke, I spoke at a craft brewers conference in Chicago. And I was in this room in which the brewers were talking, the newer brewers were talking to the older, more experienced brewers. And this guy stood up, little brewer, young guy, in his little Carhartt jacket, and he said, you know, he goes, there's something wrong in this country. We got two foreign companies, two foreign companies that are telling us in this room what to do, that are limiting our ability to sell beer to our neighbors, that determine on what terms we sell beer to our own neighbors. Guys up on the dais, people you would have seen on TV, maybe, well-known craft brewers said, hey, let's not go there. Let's never let that leave this room. If we raise that outside this room, those people will come at us. They will not abide that kind of criticism. If you are one of those 1,625 small breweries in this country, you live in fear because the big guys can shut you off tomorrow. America's farmers, you know, here's actually one a case in which the administration, the Obama administration, is actually actively investigating monopoly in this country. Over the last few months, they've had all of these hearings and looking in the poultry industry and the dairy industry and the seed industry and the beef cattle industry. And what they have found in these hearings, time after time, is almost perfect monopolization of these so-called marketplaces. If you grow chickens in this country today, there is no open market for you to bring your chickens. You grow either for Tyson or you grow for Purdue. You take their chicks, you take their feed, you take the drugs they give you on the terms they dictate to you. Then you take their prices. There's no negotiation. You take it or you leave it. Same with milk. Two companies in this country DFA, Dairy Farmers of America, and Dean Foods control more than 90% of the milk. And they actually actively collude. They dictate to all the dairy farmers in this country the terms on which milk shall be purchased, and they dictate prices to all the companies out here that sell the milk. Dairy farmers in this country, they're not going to talk about that power. There's a crisis in dairy farming. Just this year alone, 4,000 dairies in just the state of Wisconsin going bankrupt. Earlier this year in New York State, a dairy farmer went into his barn and he shot 56 cows and shot himself in the head. Yet when you get the dairy farmers into a room with Eric Holder, Attorney General, with Christine Varney, the head of the uh, antitrust department, with Tom Vilsack, who's the head of the Agricultural Department, they will not complain to these people in public because of fear of reprisal. Dairy farmers, chicken farmers, they live in fear in this country. Independent workers, salaried workers, white-collared employees, Ivy League-educated professionals, same is true here. You know, on Madison Avenue, there's this big hit TV show, Mad Men. And you sort of see how the place used to be when there used to be lots of different agencies, all this churn and all this energy and all this 
this freedom to move around. Well, nowadays, before you had 20, 30 large agencies. Nowadays, three holding companies have taken control over all those agencies. If you work in that in industry, you, got, you want to like change your job, you want more money, you want to stand up to your boss, there's a lot less chance you're going to do that. You might have an Ivy League education, but you live in fear. Because that person who's above you can turn off that tap, put you out of business, and there's a good chance you're not, you're not going to get another job. Ivy League educated people in this country living in fear. In white collar workplaces too, consolidation leads to fear. This is true increasingly in medicine, in accounting, in law. It's true even in Silicon Valley up the coast. The Department of Justice recently started to investigate a buyer's cartel, a labor buyer's cartel. Google, IBM, Apple, Intel. These companies ain't rich enough? Well, I guess not. They've actually created a buyer's cartel, so they like, talk to each other in ways that they don't hire each other's workers. They don't poach each other's workers. As the Wall Street Journal put it, they've agreed not to recruit each other's employees. Now, we have a fancy term for this. It's called labor monopsony. But we have a simpler way to understand this. When we let them make monopolies, we cede to them the power to govern us. We cede to them the power to dictate terms to us. We cede to them the power to force us to bend our knees. In our independent republic, you know, as many of you guys will recollect, it took 20 years of vicious political battle in this country, in early America, through the Sedition Act, the Embargo Act, the War of 1812, to free ourselves from the British trade system. That was the other battle between the Hamiltonians and Jeffersonians. You know, because just as Hamilton wanted to herd all the American people into industrial estates, he also wanted, he and his friends, wanted to accept dependence on British manufacturers, or rather, on the American traders and American bankers who were allied with the British manufacturers. Now the Democratic Republicans resisted this. They insisted on a thing called reciprocal trade, as we were talking before, on free trade, which meant no dependence. And eventually they won. After the Second World War, the United States at last enjoyed the power to engineer an international trading system in our Republican image, small r Republican image. You know, this marvelous web of interdependence that that fella Tom Friedman talks about, it didn't just happen. He kind of talks about it as if it just happened, that it's natural, it's metaphysical. It was made, it was manufactured. American governments after the war designed that system, and American governors af governments after the war enforced that system. We did it first in Europe, we did it with Japan, then we did it around the world. It didn't just happen, it was made. And it resulted, it resulted, it has resulted in 65 years of peace and prosperity and integration around the world, a fantastic achievement. And it has resulted, it was designed in a way that pre protected the independence of American citizens, initially, from all foreign control. Yet, over the past 16 years, what have the free traders in this country done? Free traders? 
especially under Clinton, they sold the keys to this empire. This liberal, cosmopolitan, enlightened empire built so carefully on the bones of 100 million dead, they turned control over this intricate political system. They can turn control over to Wall Street and to Wall Street's great trading companies, the British East India companies of today, like Walmart. Outsource. They outsource to those companies the power to govern this system. And the result? Well, from the American point of view, America and Americans have been made today to depend on foreign powers once again. Maybe it's our semiconductors, could be our light bulbs, could be our batteries. Increasingly, all of those products come from abroad, usually just from one place, China. Chemical ingredients, the chemical ingredients that go in our drugs, 90% of the chemical ingredients in our drugs come out of China today, 90%. Food ingredients, vitamin C, Vitamin C, ascorbic acid. Vitamin C is also ascorbic acid, which we put it in per every, just about every single packaged food in this country has ascorbic acid in it to preserve it. This is a something that Americans, an American scientist, first identified the chemical compound. First, American scientists first figured out how to synthesize this. American company first figured out how to mass manufacture it so we could put it into all this product. Today, 100% of our vitamin C or ascorbic acid comes out from a Chinese vitamin cartel. 100%. You know, we talk in this country endlessly about energy independence, even though no one country out there controls more than 12% of our oil. Just imagine what China could do tomorrow if it closed its border. That is dependence. That's abject dependence. You know what the Obama administration feels when they look across the ocean to China, to Beijing? They feel fear. Now that's just the beginning. You know, it's just like our monopolies today are bad in so many ways. You know, as I, in my book, I detail you know, there's a lot of stories in there, perhaps too many stories. But, you know, just to give you a sense of the effects of monopolization over the last 30 years, real variety in this country, but whether it's eyeglasses, whether it's the toothpaste in the stores, whether it's pet food, you've often got one company controlling well above 50% of the marketplace. We go to the stores and we see it seems to be choice, but it's just an illusion of choice. Real variety in this country is down. Quality of many of our products, down. The safety of many of our products and systems, down. The health of much of our population, at least measured by such things as diabetes and life expectancy, is actually down. Prices, on the other hand, up. They tell us that prices are going down, yet in many cases, they're going up. Vitamin C, once that Chinese vitamin cartel got 100% control, they jacked up the prices by 400%. Beer last year, went, uh, last year, 2009, went up. Price of beer. Bad year for beer drinking. Price of beer went up. Profits at Anheuser-Busch went up. 
If you got the power, use it. Job creation, down, thanks to monopolization. Innovation, down. The stability of our most vital systems, finance, production. You guys have heard these terms, too big to fail, too integrated to fail. Stability of these systems due to consolidation, monopolization, way down. But destructive speculation, that's up. Manipulation of choice in our political system, that's up. Autocratic control, that's up. Pretty much every market in this country has been monopolized. Metals, energy, chemicals, transportation, retail, and services. The production, especially high-end, I mean, it's like Microsoft, Intel, IBM, Cisco, Apple. These are companies that are largely composed of monopolies. And I haven't even mentioned the companies that have their hands on our brains, like AT&T and Comcast and Google. There's actually one way to understand just how bad it's become in our land of cowboy capitalism is to look at cowboy boots. The three biggest brands are called, are named Justin, Tony Lama, and No Kona. You know who owns all three brands? It's a fellow from Omaha, a fellow named Warren Buffett. Cowboy capitalism in the year of our Lord 2010 in America. It means that the capitalist gets to charge the cowboy rent just to stand in his own boots. So how did this happen? Well, the simplest answer to how this happened is that we allowed ourselves to be taught to see ourselves differently. You know, in 1776, when Jefferson was sketching out the Declaration of Independence, something happened, and they just found this out recently. They were x-raying the original document, and he wrote out first, he wrote the word subjects. And he scratched it out, and he wrote right over it, he wrote the word citizen. Now, this is hugely important because subjects exist under the state, or rather, under the people who control the state. Now, you might say you have certain rights, but you don't really control the state. Citizens, however, are the state. Citizens write the rules. And for 200 years in this country, we regarded ourselves foremost as citizens. And as citizens, what we wanted, what we demanded, was foremost liberty. That's what citizens want. A generation ago, however, we allowed ourselves to be relabeled consumers. And what do consumers value in this country or anywhere? They don't value liberty. They value stuff, cheap stuff. Now, it's important to emphasize I am not making some kind of hippie rant against materialism. You know, I'm actually talking in this case about real law, real world law. It's because strange as it may seem, this idea that Americans are consumers rather than citizens was actually used to reform, reframe how an entire body of law, our anti-monopoly laws. For two centuries, as we, we used our anti-monopoly laws to protect ourselves as citizens from concentrated power, from predation by people using large corporations. And then in 1981, President Reagan changed the law, and he said, you know what? Rather than competition for the sake of competition, rather than aiming to protect open markets, we're going to enforce these laws based on something entirely different. It's called consumer welfare. 
Now the consumer welfare frame, consumer welfare just means efficiency. Now some of you may remember that the old-timey monopolists, those folks from the late 19th century, the John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, they routinely used the word efficiency to justify accumulation of power, arbitrary power in their own hands. Competition, they used to say, is wasteful. Concentration of control, that's efficient. It was the same basic argument that Louis Couture's made. It was the same argument that the Marxists and the Leninists and the Stalinists made. It's the same argument that many of the people who control our largest corporations today make. Efficiency, concentration of control is good. But let's be very clear about how the logic of consumerism plays out in our political economy over time. If consumers are served best by lower prices, and lower prices are achieved through economies of scale, ergo monopoly is the best friend of the consumer. To accept consumerism is to accept the efficiency argument, to accept the efficiency argument always has been, be it in 18th century France, in 19th century plutocratic America, in the 20th century Soviet Union, it is to board a main line highball express to concentration of economic power and political power to autocratic government. And indeed, in the three decades since Reagan overthrew, uh, in our America, since he overthrew the anti-monopoly laws, since he overthrew that concept of citizen and replaced it with the concept of consumer, in market after market, we've seen immense trading companies run by Wall Street financiers. Under the banner of efficiency, we've seen them bust into our communities. We've seen them insert themselves in between the producer and the buyer. We've seen them insert themselves between neighbor and neighbor. We've seen them dictate terms to us. We've seen them seize our properties. We've seen them erect themselves as rulers, not merely over all economic activity, but over our states, our communities, our very persons. So when you hear the word consumer next, swap in the word tenant. Swap in the word proletarian. Swap in the word peon, who once every four years is patronized by one or the other factions of the elite. When next time you hear the word consumer, think of concentration of power sufficient to rule you and your children and your community for a generation and perhaps forever. You know, we must be honest with ourselves about what's taking place in this country today. All this monopolization, all these bailouts, this ain't socialism, <laughs> like the Tea Party folks say. It ain't a takeover of the, private, by, of the private sector by the state. What we are seeing is a takeover of the state by a few private actors. We're seeing use of the state by these proof, proof private actors to make themselves that much more powerful. In America today, we see a combination of public and private power increasingly feudal in nature, increasingly arbitrary in nature, increasingly autocratic in nature. What is at stake today in America is our democracy, our free society, our most basic liberties, and our republic.
Well, I only got a few minutes left, and I got to figure out, got to tell you about what we're going to do here. Because <laughs> it kind of seems a little helpless, doesn't it? You know, well, it ain't going to be easy, but I am completely, absolutely, a thousand percent sure that we're going to whoop these mothers. We're going to break up and harness these Goliaths. We're going to redistribute power. We're going to refound for the third time a democratic republic in this land. Why am I so optimistic? Well, first off, and, and this is very important, we've been here before. We've beaten these powers before. 1981 was not the first time a republic in America was overthrown. It happened after the Civil War. You know, we kind of use the strange term plutocrat to describe the powerful folks of that era. But it's more useful if we like, look at men like Rockefeller and Carnegie as a second generation of feudal lords. They didn't control land at estates like the plantations, but what they controlled was industrial estates. Now, also, you know, rather than look at a fellow like J.P. Morgan simply as a powerful banker, we might more usefully look at him as a sort of king. I don't know how many of you know the history of, of J.P. Morgan, but he used to use his power over Wall Street to essentially seize power over these lords of these industrial estates. He had the power to tell them what to do. Just like a king, he could create property and destroy property. Now, some of you may have heard Glenn Beck recently ranting about the classical progressives, the progressives of 100 years ago saying they were socialists, saying they're corporatists. Perhaps you even heard Mr. Beck talk about how Teddy Roosevelt was a socialist. Well, you know, I don't agree with Mr. Beck on a lot of things, but here's a case I actually do. Mr. Teddy Roosevelt did not break up a lot of trusts. When he took on Morgan in 1902, his goal was not to destroy the power that Morgan had concentrated. It was to take that power and put it in his own hands. It was to take the crown off of Morgan's head and put it on his own head. We've seen corporatism in this country. We saw it from the late 19th century right into the 1930s. Now this history, this history may seem kind of antique. <laughs> it may seem kind of ancient. It may seem like there's no use in looking back at this. But I rehearse it because it illuminates a single vital fact the reason we even get to blame Reagan and Clinton for overthrowing a democratic republic in the 1980s and 1990s is because the American people in the 1930s restored a democratic republic in our land. We restored a republic of independent citizens. We did so in this thing called the Second New Deal. Second New Deal. You know, libertarians today like to remind us, and this is rightly so, they like to tell us that the American people in rejecting centralization the centralization that people were doing in the first New Deal, that they rejected centralized planning, that we rejected government control. And they're right. But what these libertarians don't bother to recollect is that the American people during the second New Deal also rejected private direction and centralization, private centralized planning, private socialization at risk, private corporate rule. Even as Germany, Italy, Japan, and Russia 
in the 1930s were falling deeper and deeper into authoritarian, totalitarian power. Our great-grandparents, inspired by Madison and Jefferson, inspired by Louis Brandeis, that James Madison of the 20th century, we went in the exact opposite direction. We set out to force industrial oligopolies to compete. We set out to democratize access to capital. We set out to protect our open markets from enclosure. We set out to protect the independent storekeep and the individual farmer from men wielding giant chains and corporations. We set out to break all that power up, to restore checks and balances in the political economy, and we did it. We beat those Goliaths. We took their power. We returned it to the individual independent citizen in the local community. If ever we are going to reestablish a democratic republic in this country again, we must recognize first that the second New Deal, we have to recognize it for what it really was, which was the second American Revolution. Very quickly, there's four other reasons why we shall prevail. First is we ain't got no choice. You know, this thing about too big to fail, too integrated to fail, that's what I do for a day job. That's what I've been doing for the last eight, nine years. I've been all over the world talking about this issue about how systems have been made, built to fail. It's too complicated to get in here today. It's too depressing, but suffice it to say, it's so depressing. It is a fact that shatters all of the arguments, all of the smug security of those who run these systems. Second reason that we're going to prevail is because we got the power. You know, everyone right now, all over America, all these people, the, the book publishers are over there cowering in a corner, and the brewers are over there cowering in another corner, and the opticians are over there, and the software engineers, and the scientists, everyone's off in their own little corners cowering, and they see some power up there. But you know what? When we get everyone in the same room, we're going to see that we're all fighting the same enemy. And when we all come together, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to help each other out. Third reason we're going to win is because there's a whole hell of a lot of them who are actually with us. There's a lot of very powerful, very rich people in this country who are extremely disturbed about what's going on. You know, rich folks is not some giant monolithic class. There's all kinds of folks in there. There are the Jeffersons, the Madisons, the Washingtons of today are out there to be found. They will come and work with us. I can guarantee you that. It's already happening. You know, and there's another reason. You know, we have a duty. All of us who are parents, we who are Je Madison's children, you know, we simply shall not be the generation that allows this chain to break. You know, where our grandparents and our great, 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 great grandparents stood and fought and won freedom for us, we're not going to sit. We're not going to sit in fear and fail. We're, gonna, we're not going to deliver our own children to a future of cockfight tournaments, to a future of unrestrained bossism. You know, we who inherited a democratic republic have a duty to bequeath the democratic republic to our, the next generation. This is the mission of our generation. You know, and I'll tell you, it has already started. Strangely enough, it's actually started 
to some degree in the UK, in the Tory party. It started right here. I mean, let's you know, be honest about what the initial, what, why the initial group of Tea Partiers rose up. It ha it's happening with various of the, th of the reforms that are going on in Washington. You know, it's happening right here in this room. I mean, people are out here because you care, because you're ready to do something. You know, it's like American people are just now, we're just now waking up from this long, strange, pathetic, opium dream of free marketism, of consumerism. But we're waking up, and all we have to do is look in our own hands, and there's the power. Right in all our hands, there's the power to break up these other powers. And we're going to have a lot of fun when we do it. Anyway, thank you all for coming out. Amazon is bad for you as a writer, but as a consumer, I can go on Amazon and I can get your book for half price instead of paying way too much at a bookstore. How is it necessarily bad? I don't understand. Well, I, guess, I mean, I absolutely understand that. I've been addicted to Amazon myself. You know, it's like when I, even knowing what I know, I'll go on and I say, oh my God, it's $17 here and it's $25 there. It's really hard. <laughs> but um, it's bad because the prices that Amazon is charging are false prices. They're artificial prices. They're based on the fact they're not making any money off of those books. They're making those, what uh, they're doing is they're selling those books super cheap so they could destroy Barnes & Noble. They're selling those books super cheap so they could destroy the local bookstore. They're selling those books super cheap so they can consolidate all this power. They're not doing it because they care about you as a consumer, but they're doing it because they want to capture control over this space. Now, for much of our history, much in the, in the 20th century, for much of our history, this kind of price manipulation by a very powerful conglomerate was illegal. For most of the 20th century, it was illegal. This is, it's actually this kind of the ability of large companies to set these prices. This is one of the things that empowered Walmart to grow as quickly as it did. So, um, you know, I, I'm not telling you not to buy uh, on Amazon. And, um, but, and the people at Amazon, I'm not saying that they're actually, you know, a bunch of bad people who are out there trying to do bad things. They're just taking advantage of the present environmental law. But uh, what I'm saying is that the present environmental law is very bad for the future of the book industry because it puts a single private company over in control of this entire industry. They can dictate terms, and they are dictating terms to the publishers. They're deciding what gets published and what doesn't get published. They're actually disintermediating the publishers right now. There's like they're picking and choosing among writers, and they're, they're bringing them over, so, they, so they're breaking up these organizations that exist to make books, to edit books, to produce books. So um, I think you know, having, there's a really big difference between having 10 large companies or maybe 50 medium-sized companies in charge of making books in this country or having one company in charge of all books. I think it's a pretty substantial difference. Uh, my name is Todd, and it seems to me that if the last few years have 
shown us anything, it's that the concentration of authority, at least as far as China is concerned, has done pretty well for them. I wonder if you would comment on the pros and cons of their approach to the economy and where perhaps we might take some lessons from them and perhaps take some uh, caution from them. You know, my previous book was called End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation. I used to run a magazine called Global Business uh, for seven years. So I uh, spent a lot of time in China. Um, you know, the Chinese, I mean, there's two forms of uh, authority. It's like there's the political authoritarianism, and then there's sort of having a government that is actively engaged in, in sort of creating marketplaces. Um, and now the use of the government to create open marketplaces, that's a good thing. You know, not to pick winners and losers, but to enforce the rules. And the Chinese are actually, strangely enough, they actually do a pretty good job of this. There's more competition. There's a lot of competition in this car market. There's actually more competition in their car market. There's more competition in all these markets over there because they do a better job of creating open marketplaces. Um, but, you know, it's very, I think, you know, you really, it's very important to separate the political authoritarianism from you know, uh, sort of smart use of uh, governmental power to create liberty, create open spaces for people. Those are two radically different um, uses of, of governmental power. And, um, you know, my colleague, Tom Friedman, I think he often gets a little confused. <laughs> and he actually sometimes, and this is something that you see often with people who have kind of a utopian or a liber radical libertarian bent, is that when things don't go exactly as they wanted, when the metaphysical forces that they thought were at work don't deliver the outcome they were expecting, then they're very likely often to embrace these authoritarian forms. My recollection of history is a little bit fuzzy, but I'm remembering like uh, the Wizard of Oz as an allegory for a populist uprising against the like, Wicked Witch of the East being the big banks, etc. And I vaguely remember something about populist movements rising in this country but never really succeeding. So it was interesting to hear you point out where they had. Uh, if you can distinguish that a little bit for me, that'd be great. Um, it occurs to me... I was just thinking this week about the, the Tea Party movement as a populist movement in this country and, and how that can make it so popular and wondering how, how its chances of success fared uh, compared to the, the way that populist movements have uh, fared in the past. And it struck me, though, that they're off a little bit, like the argument that I mean, as far as the populist movement goes, like saying that people that make more than $250,000 a year, if they get a tax cut, it will be good for the economy because they'll invest more. When it seems that the opposite is true. If there's a high marginal tax rate, I won't, instead of taking the money for myself, I'll reinvest it. So as a populist movement, I wonder where they fit. And my last point, if you could address is, didn't Adam Smith, wasn't he very down on the uh, corporation as an entity and felt that it was not... Uh, it, it was counter to uh, market economy and competition in what we theoretically think, what we believe that we stand for. The populist party, there actually was a populist party in this country. They started, they started off in the 18, early 1890s calling themselves the People's Party and then ended up uh, sort of 
is uh, choosing the word populist instead. And that sort of it was built on or attached to a bunch of parties that had come out of the Civil War, or after the Civil War, when people started to radically concentrate power. You know, people on Wall Street started to radically concentrate power. All these people out in the real world tried to create parties that allowed them to counter the rich folks. And the populists of 1892, they regarded themselves as Jeffersonians. Essentially, they were like a Jeffersonian party that had formed without the help of rich, powerful leaders. So you're right. I mean, it's the, uh, the, the, the Wizard of Oz, which was written in that time, was a populist allegory. I mean, it was this idea that... Um, and it's, it's actually something I used to put in, in some of my talks, which is... Um, you know, the point of the author was that every, you know, people tell us that all this power is being concentrated because it's natural progress. Because there's a metaphysical reason why you know, certain people get rich and certain people don't. There's, you know, that the way the, 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 the markets or the, the um, money and the economy flows, that it's kind of natural. There's really nothing we can do about it. And what, what the author of, of Wizard of Oz wanted to do is it's that point when you sort of pull back the curtain and you see that there's actually a bunch of levers there and there's just a little guy sort of manipulating the levers. The point was to say, hey, you know what? Everything that's going on in this world is political in nature. If there's someone, if there's money that's vanishing out of your back pocket. It's because someone is using this institution called the corporation to reach around you and pull it out of your pocket. So that was the point of, of, of The Wizard of Oz. And in the 1890s, there was this high point. The populists almost won power. They took control of the Democratic Party, and they almost won the presidential election in 1896, but they didn't. And then you had the corporatists come in. But then in 1912, Wilson came in. And for the first two years, the Wilson administration was essentially run by the populace until the First World War. And then the corporatists kind of took over so they could run the war effort. And that was the end of that populist experiment. It was only in 1935 that the populists which were essentially just, it's another name for Jeffersonians, Madisonians, Democratic Republicans. They took power in the second New Deal. The first New Deal was the idea of we're going to take everything and smash it together, get all of labor and capital in the same room and, and government in the same room. It was like what was going on in Italy at that time. It was what was going on in Germany at that time. We should do that here. And then Louis Brandeis on the court made the court, managed to get the court to do a 9-0 decision that, that said that the NIRA, National Industrial Recovery Act, was in, unconstitutional. And then the populace actually took control, or actually another way to look at it is Roosevelt said, okay, well, they want the power, I'll give it, I'll, I'll let them have it for a while. And the populace, the Democratic Republicans, really established the rule of law that ensured that the communities of mid-century America had their own stores. It wasn't all controlled by Walmart. They had their own banks. It wasn't all controlled by Citibank. Had their own farm traders. It wasn't all controlled by Cargill. 
These were, it wasn't natural. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't God decreed this. It was a bunch of folks set the rules that resulted in distribution of power. Um, so that, that's when the populists really succeeded. The Tea Party, I mean, they're off a lot. It's not just a bit. Um, in my sense, the Tea Party, there's a bunch of really good, well-meaning folks who are members of the Tea Party. And when those people stood up and self-organized, I mean, they were angry at the same things we are. They were angry about the bailout of the banks. They were angry about the bailout of Detroit. But what's happened since then is they have largely allowed themselves to be taken over by the GOP. They've allowed themselves to be taken over by the Fox people. They've allowed themselves to be taken over by uh, Mr. Murdoch Sconey. And, uh, you know, so they, uh, one of the reasons that they're off of it is because they're being fed lines because they don't have an intelligentsia sort of built in. They're being fed lines by people who know what they want. So they've become a captive army used by the very people that they, are, they set out to fight. And Adam Smith, corporations, um, absolutely. Adam Smith spent no little part of Wealth of Nations railing against monopolies, railing against corporations, railing against absentee ownership. And, you know, actually, if you read the Wealth of Nations right now, it reads like a radical tract. Hi, my name is Patrick McOldrick. And I'm, I'm wondering about, you're talking about people losing, uh, you know, the power of the, well, you want to return power to the individual, right? But somebody like Reagan, right, he, he deregulated things like telephones, and the price of telephones came down, and we got a broader market, right? He basically beat up the, the monopoly in telephones, right, by his deregulation. He deregulated airlines, and that messed up the airline industry. The prices of airline tickets went down, right? Consumers did better, and now we have things like JetBlue and, and Southwest. Uh, whereas on the other hand, you know, if you look at the other party, they've brought us things like Social Security, which is a monopolization of our, of, of our retirement system. We have employment insurance as a monopolization of that. We're pushing for monopolization of health care insurance. When they, before, they, they monopolized the health care for the elderly and monopolized health care for the poor, which takes over more than 50% of all health care dollars. And now they want to monopolize the rest of the health care uh, insurance industry. Um, I'm trying to figure out how the, uh, you know, it seems like the, the big, some of the big industries like airlines and autos, where they've had very large, they've fallen apart on their own. They're, they had these huge pension plans that were crushing the companies. Aren't these all examples of big companies that come apart all by themselves without any intervention? In fact, better if the government helps, you know, uh, deregulate them instead of an issue. Your question, sir. Isn't it an issue of the government needs to get out of the way, not come in and manipulate it? There's a number of good points in there. Um, I mean, the main thing I, I would, you know, sort of caution against is like looking at one of these parties as being good and the other party as being bad, or one party standing from one side. And one, you know, I mean, essentially, the two parties, it's, it, we're kind of where we were with the two parties a hundred years ago. Or, which is that on one side you got a group that advocates feudalism, private governance, private centralized governance. And on the other side you got people who, 
you know, believe a little bit more in science, believe a little bit more in progressivism. And they say, oh, we should get the government, you should get the wise folks, we should get the wise economists like, you know, Larry Summers. And, and, uh, and get them in so that we can, we can help those private folks figure out how to run it better so we can create more material wealth. You know, and it, and it, neither of these parties right now are run by Democrats. Neither of these parties are run by people who believe in small R republicanism. Both sides like to have the power concentrated. And the only time they really argue is about, like, really who should be in charge at this very moment. You know, so... Um, you know, uh, if we go back 30 years, you know, there's a lot of blame to share around what Reagan did. Reagan was a regime change in terms of political economics, but Clinton didn't change it. In many ways, he accelerated the concentration that was taking place domestically. Obama hasn't changed it. He's, asked, he's got a few people out there asking questions, but he hasn't stopped a single merger. And as the last questioner pointed out, in the case of insurance, in the case of banking, this administration is making things bigger. You know, insurance, the power was actually distributed out with a whole bunch of different folks, and now it's like we're going to have six giant insurers because it'll be more efficient. So, um, you know, the, the key thing is to just, you know, get away from saying, well, I'm going to follow the blue banner, I'm going to follow the red banner, and, and, and sort of try and think about, actually realize that both sides are lying to us in different ways, and figure out who, you know, who among our neighbors actually is going to help us take the power from those folks. Because there's a lot of people, I'd say the majority of Republicans and the majority of Democrats and the majority of Libertarians believe in democratic republicanism. And the issue is getting the banner that they can trust, that they can follow, that we can follow, uh, that we're going to you know, allow us to push those other folks out of their positions. My name is Steve Rao. I'm a marketing consultant. And what I'd like to hear is by what sort of mechanism um, you see the power shifting. Um, for example, would you suggest that um, simply, um, we insist that our government take um, a different stance on monopolies and start calling out specifics, such as some of the ones that you've mentioned or others that I could go into. Um, I'm awfully damned beholden to Google, for example. Um, what, what is the mechanism? It's not waiting for government. Government, you know, government really just works for those who's got, you know, who've got their hands on it. You know, that's actually one of the things that, that drives me crazy about the Tea Party folks and the radical libertarians, because it's like, in this world, there never has been no government, <laughs> and there never will be no government. The issue always is, who has their hands on the government, how are they using it? And if we don't have our hands on the government, it means someone, very likely, is using that government against us. The issue is how do we put our hands? I mean, the mechanism is how do we put our hands on the government once again, which we don't have right now. And the, to do it effectively, the issue is it's really a matter of waking up, of seeing what is out there, 
of reconnecting with the old languages and the old frames that were, worked pretty well for 200 years and that got taken away when we went from talking about competition to talking about consumers. So it's really a matter of us educating ourselves about who really runs the parties, about what they're really trying to do to us. And my, I am absolutely certain that once we stop acting like passive consumers, and once we start thinking of ourselves as citizens again, and once we start reading the text as citizens, and there's lots of fantastic texts in this country, that texts of liberty, there's a whole model to adapt, to adopt, to use in the Second New Deal. Once we reconnect with that, we will make the demands, we will coordinate our actions, we will work together in ways that we put our hands back on the government. And there's, you know, it's gonna happen. It ain't gonna be pretty always, but it's gonna be exhilarating a lot of the time. Thanks for joining us and thank you all. We'll see you at the reception.